Good morning to everyone who is here and to those of you who are watching online, hello. Uh, and happy Father's Day to all of our dads who are here today and all of those who are watching online as well. I hope everyone has a great Father's Day. Uh, I'm Tim Mintern, one of the pastors here, and I hope you got to enjoy the dad, the bad dad jokes video before the service started. Uh, I feel a little bit tough for my competitors. I had an unfair advantage. Uh, my dad was a pastor for 50 years, and so I had to hear a lot of bad dad jokes twice, uh, once at home and then once during his messages as well. And yeah, so in honor of my own dad, I have one more that didn't make the video, so I want to share one with you this morning, here it is. How do you catch a unique rabbit? Unique up on it. Yeah, a few of you had heard that one. Okay, yeah. Again, they're called bad dad jokes for a reason, all right? Uh, I love my dad, and I love all of his, well, a few of his jokes. What's in your life right now that you need to overcome? What is the challenge that you are currently facing that you need to conquer? Uh, what is there right now that you need to accomplish to be an overcomer? Think about this for a moment. And I want you to hold on to it for just a few minutes here. Uh, we're going to jump into this idea of how we can be an overcomer in a particular area of life. Uh, today is week three of the other 316s, and if you've missed the first two messages, please check them out on the River Ridge Church app. You can watch them there. Uh, great messages about those. John 316 is the most famous verse in the Bible because it very clearly lays out God's story and our story and how God came to rescue us, and it's a great verse. And last summer, Andy was talking about possibly doing a series on the other 316s of the Bible. And I was in his office one day, and he was saying, hey, here's some of these are really good. He said some of them are a little bit more challenging. And then when he read Judges 316, I said, oh, yes. I said, I want that one. He's like, what? I said, oh, it's a fascinating story. I said, I want that. I want that one if we're going to do it. He said, okay, it's yours. And so here's what Judges 316 says. It says this. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. Wow, what an inspirational verse, right? Yeah. I mean, this, that's fascinating. You're like, man, that just draws me right in, Tim. Thanks for sharing. Um, okay. By itself, this verse really doesn't have a whole lot to say to us, but it plays a very key role in what's going on in the book of Judges and in this story in particular. Uh, before we dive into this story, though, we need to understand a little bit about what's happening in the book of Judges. Uh, if you've never read the book of Judges, I highly recommend it. Incredible book, uh, full of action, an incredible period of time in the history of the nation of Israel. But to understand the context of it, we need to know just a little bit about the history of Israel. So the nation of Israel was started when God called Abraham apart. And God set Abraham apart from others, and he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And Abraham had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob was the one who uh, then had 12 sons. And one night, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And then his 12 sons and their descendants became the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, was sold by his other brothers into slavery in Egypt. And God was with Joseph, and Joseph did remarkable things in the land of Egypt, and eventually he became the prime minister of Egypt. And so then he moved his father and all of his brothers down to Egypt to live there and all of their families. 
Then at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, uh, it says that a Pharaoh came to power who did not know Joseph. So this Pharaoh then enslaved these people and he put them in captivity and he made them do very, very hard labor. And it was many, many years of this, hundreds of years. And finally, God raised up a rescuer, Moses. And God raised up Moses and Moses then was called by God to lead the people out of Egypt and to lead them to the promised land. Well, Moses was a great leader and he led the nation of Israel for over 40 years. But along the way, he did something that God said, because of your disobedience, you're not going to get to lead the people into the promised land. He gave that honor to Joshua, who had been the general underneath of Moses. So when Moses died, Joshua became the leader of the nation of Israel. And so Joshua then leads them into the promised land, and they conquer nations, and they, they kick people out, and they kill people, and they take the land, and they possess it. And then they settle the land, and they distribute it out to the 12 tribes, and they spread out all the land to them. And then Joshua died. So far, Israel's had two key leaders, Moses and Joshua. Both of them very strong leaders, phenomenal leaders. And these two guys had led the nation well. But at this point in time, there's not an individual leader to lead the country. And so the nation of Israel now becomes very tribal in the way that it functioned. Uh, now we come to the book of Judges. And in chapter 1 of the book of Judges, we're told that the people failed to drive out the inhabitants of the promised land. They didn't completely obey God, and they had one excuse after another and one reason after another as to why they couldn't drive out these people. But ultimately, they didn't completely obey what God told them to do. And God said since they hadn't completely obeyed them, he was going to leave some of the people in the land to test Israel and to help them to learn how to fight wars in a way that relied upon God. And so now we have the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, living with multiple pagan nations right around them, and it's that this time there's no strong leader who emerges. And so the nation starts going through a vicious cycle. And they cycle something like this. Uh, the book of Judges records it all, but they forget about God. And then they start to worship idols and serve the idols that are around them of the other nations. And then God gives them over to the other nations to be captured and to be put under suffering and oppression by these other kings. And then finally they repent, they cry out to God, and God raises up a deliverer or a judge, and he raises this person up, and then at that point, once he's raised up, they learn to rely on God, they defeat the oppressive nations, and then there's a period of peace and a period of rest in the land. And then the cycle starts all over again. And they go through this again. They forget about God. They start sinning by worshiping idols. Uh, they're put into suffering and captivity, and then... They cry out to God, and God raises up a judge. There's peace in the land again. And then the cycle starts all over again. And this is throughout the book of Judges. So this morning, we're going to get into our scripture passage of Judges 3, and we'll start in verse 12 of Judges chapter 3. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, or the NLT, if you're following along in your Bibles. Here's what verse 12 says. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and Amalekites as allies. And then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. We see this cycle start up again here. The Israelites did evil, and Eglon defeated them and took control. And he controlled them for 18 years. I'd like us to get a grasp on what this was like. Okay? The nation of Israel was controlled by this evil, self-indulgent king. 
and he did what he wanted to do, and he took what he wanted to take, and he did whatever he wanted to do with the people of Israel. It was his choice. He was in control. Uh, to understand this fully, 18 years, okay? If you're in high school, that means that the only thing you've ever known is serving under the oppression of this king. That's all that you've known. If you're under 40, your entire working career has been given to this king to serve him and to do what he pleases, and what you do is up to him. Okay? If you're a grandparent, you have seen this king take your grandkids and take him and do whatever he wants to do with them. It's his choice. And so we've been sitting under this for 18 years. And you'd think during that time someone would have said, man, someone needs to do something about this. Somebody should do something about this, right? Uh, but no one took action. No one did anything to King Eglon and the Moabites. No one was an overcomer for the nation of Israel. So I asked you some questions a few minutes ago, and I asked you to think about it for just a moment here, and I want to get back to these now. What is in your life right now that you need to overcome? What is the challenge that you are facing that you need to conquer? What is it right now in your life that you need to accomplish to be an overcomer? Maybe it's a project at home that your spouse has asked you to do. Uh, maybe it's that day that you promised to spend with your kids and you promised to spend time with them. Uh, maybe it's taking time in the morning to spend time with God. Maybe it's sitting down and doing a budget and getting a real good handle on your finances. Uh, maybe it's a conversation that you need to have with a friend. Uh, maybe it's something at work that you need to tackle. Uh, now that you've had a few minutes to think about it, I'd like us just to dive a little bit deeper into this. What keeps you from taking action? What prevents you from accomplishing what you need to do? Uh, what is there in your life right now that you know needs done, but you aren't doing it? Here's what I know. The battle that we often face is inside of us. We battle with what's going on within us. And what's taking place up here needs to be overcome so that we can accomplish what we need to do out here. And one of the best ways to win the battle within, within us, one of the best ways to win the battle that's going on in our own heads is this. Tell yourself the truth. Tell yourself the truth. When you look at your situation and when you look at your circumstances, what are you telling yourself? What are you saying inside your own head? What you tell yourself will determine whether you can take action and accomplish what you need to do to overcome or whether you just continue to say, someone should do something about this. For the rest of the morning, we're going to focus on Ehud, whom we read about in our 316 for this week. In verse 15, Ehud is first mentioned in the book of Judges, and Ehud is a man of action. And we're going to look at how he took action and what he did to overcome. And as we walk through this story, we're going to see some things that we need to tell ourselves and what we can do then to take action and overcome as well. So let's get back to the scriptures here in verse 15. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. Now, there's a lot of details going on here. There's a whole lot in this passage. And the first thing that we're going to do when we unpack to see their significance, first thing we're going to see here is the people finally cry out to God. And this is part of the cycle. They finally cried out. They finally cried out to God and said, God, we need help. And then God did what he does. He raises up a deliverer. 
And this deliverer's name is Ehud. And we read that Ehud is left-handed. Now, this is significant. This is unusual, especially at this time of history. Uh, the Hebrew word here seems to indicate that Ehud was left-handed because his right hand didn't work. It was either from a birth defect or possibly it had gotten injured and maybe it was withered from birth. But for some reason, it seems to indicate his right hand didn't work. And so he had a disability, but it didn't stop him. He could have used this excuse as a reason not to take action. Uh, he could have just said, you know, I've got, I've got a problem with my hand. I, I'm pretty much incompetent, incapable of doing something. You know, that's easy for us to do as well. It's easy for us to take a reason and make it an excuse. Uh, this is the one way that the battle takes place with inside us. We find a reason to use this as an excuse, and then we hold on to that excuse. Man, we hold it tight. We say, I'm not going to do anything because of this. And so we hold ourselves back. It's not someone else who's preventing us from taking action. It's us. And Ehud could have looked at his situation and his circumstance in the same way, and he could have easily come to the conclusion that he wasn't worthy of delivering anyone. He could have determined that he was not capable of producing a victory. But that's not what he did. He did not allow his limitations to handicap what he could accomplish. So what are you telling yourself about your limitations, about your circumstances and your situations? What are you saying? What are you telling yourself that's going to determine how you act and what action you take? So you need to tell yourself the truth. Here's the first of the three things you need to say. We need to say, I am uniquely created by God. So that's the first thing we need to understand. Ehud had a disability, uh, which actually was going to be an advantage for him, but he didn't know it at the time. He didn't know what was going to happen and why his right hand didn't work the way it was supposed to. How God has created you is going to allow you to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. He created you uniquely, just as you are, and he made you the way that he wanted you to be. Often, people can become victims of circumstances or victims of their own limitations, and they wallow around in self-pity, and they miss out on what God has designed them for. They miss out on what he wants them to do. And they're victims instead of overcomers. But when we recognize, when we recognize that we are uniquely created by God, we are then at the place of accepting that He has something planned for us. When we have failed to recognize that we're uniquely created by God, it's also easy for us to fall into the comparison trap. And we then think that we're not able to accomplish as much as someone else, so we don't even try. And rather than accomplishing what God designed us for, we're stuck accomplishing nothing because we don't think we are as good as someone else. I had this experience about 25 years ago uh, when I played college basketball at Appalachian Bible College. Uh, it was a small Bible college and uh, didn't give out any athletic scholarships. Okay? There's no money given out. Uh, they didn't do any recruiting. And all but one year uh, that I was there, if you tried out for the team, you made the team. Okay? Only one year did somebody get cut, and that was my freshman year. We had 13 people try out, and we only had 12 uniforms. So somebody wasn't going to make it. So it wasn't exactly the highest level of basketball, um, but we were fairly competitive within the other Bible colleges that we played. Now, I had played my first two years of colleges, and my sophomore year, I got quite a bit of playing time. However, for my junior year, uh, we got a freshman point guardian that was really good. And he was a really good basketball player. And when I compared myself to him, I realized I wasn't as good as he was. I wasn't going to get much play in time. And so I made up a lot of excuses. Uh, I was too busy. 
Uh, I was going to have to work. I had too much going on, and I didn't play. The reality is he was faster than me. He dribbled better than I did. He shot better than I did. He passed better than I did. But what I didn't take into account was that what else I could have brought to the team. Uh, this freshman point guard lost his grades at the end of the first semester. And so the second semester, he was ineligible. And what I didn't realize, what God had created me with something that I could have done to help him. God had created me with, with a good study habits and good abilities to be able to think and to be able to help others. And I could have tutored him and helped him to keep his grades. But I didn't. I didn't do anything at all to help him. And here's what happens. When we compare ourselves to others, everybody loses out. And this is why we need to tell ourselves the truth. We need to tell ourselves that I am uniquely created by God. So please say it with me this morning. I am uniquely created by God. We need to understand this, and we need to recognize this. So let's keep this story going. Here's our 316 for the day. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. All right, now this verse may make a little bit more sense, right? Ehud had a plan. He had made a double-edged dagger, or the Hebrew word here is actually the same for a sword. So it was a small sword about 12 to 18 inches long, uh, just long enough that he could hide it on his right thigh, underneath his clothing. And most people in that day were right-handed. So Ehud being left-handed is significant here. A right-handed person would carry their sword on their left side, and when they pulled their sword out, they'd pull it across their body like this. And so whenever they went in to see the king, the king would have checked their left side for a sword and not mess with the right side. And so when he went in to see the king, the guards would have checked and not have noticed his concealed weapon on his right side. Now let's continue on in verse 17. It says this, He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. Yeah. Interesting the detail there, right? But it is very significant. And Actually, I think we may have a picture here of what he might have looked like. Every time I read this passage of Scripture, I've always thought of Jabba the Hutt. I, I mean, I can't get away from it. Just look at that. It's kind of gross. But, okay. but King Eglon was very fat. So let's move on now to verse 18. Here's what it says. After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. He came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. As Ehud and his companions were traveling back, they'd already delivered the tribute, and they come to a place called Gilgal. And Ehud stops, and he sends everybody else home and says, you're all going back, head on back home. Uh, I've got to go see the king by myself, and I've got a message to deliver to him. So what was it about Gilgal that made him stop and say, something has to happen here. I have to go back and see the king. I mean, he's had this dagger strapped to his leg the whole trip. right? He's had it there. He's been to see the king. He's given the tribute. They've walked out and they've headed home. And he didn't use the dagger that he had when he delivered the tribute. But now he decides to go back and see the king. Well, Gilgal is a very special place. Uh, Gilgal is the place where when the children of Israel first crossed into the promised land, it was at Gilgal. And they took 12 big stones out of the Jordan River. And they placed them there as a memorial to remember God's goodness, to remember God's faithfulness to them. And now Ehud would have known this, and he would have known that Gilgal had special meaning to the children of Israel. And so seeing these stone idols in a place where he usually would have been reminded of God's goodness, that very well may have caused him to know that he needed to take action. 
For the 18 years of oppression, people have been saying, someone needs to do something. And now Ehud has says, this needs to be done, but he hadn't taken the action yet. As a matter of fact, he had even walked away from the king. But when he gets to Gilgal, something changes. Something happens, and he has to take action. So here's what we need to tell ourselves. We need to say this. We need to say, I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to. And somewhere here, he moved, Ehud moved from saying, someone needs to do something, to saying, this needs to be done, to now saying, I have to do this. What can very easily happen to us is that we can be forgetful about what needs to be done. And we can take no action. We can have the best of intentions to sit down and have that conversation. We have the desire to reconcile that relationship. We have the need to serve our spouse. But we don't do it. And then we forget. And the pace of life gets going again and it causes us to push it off our mind until something happens. And something triggers it within us and we go, oh yeah, I've got something I need to do. And so we then come up with this and we say, I have to do this. I have to do this. I can't keep putting it off. And sometimes when we remember, we also may have a lack of urgency. I mean, we need to schedule that appointment, but we think, ah, I'll get to it next week. Or we think, I will see the person when I see them. I will get to that project eventually, and we have no sense of urgency about it. So let's tell ourselves the truth that I have to do this. Would you say this with me, please? I have to do this. Let's move from saying someone needs to do something about this to saying I have to do this let's take ownership of the responsibility that we have uh, for getting it done when we get to the sense of urgency that we cannot wait any longer to take action it will move us to do what we need to do let's get back to Ehud and King Eglon Ehud has just come back to see the king and told him that he has a secret message for him and so we pick back up in the end of verse 19 it says so the king commanded his servants be quiet and he sent them all out of the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And as King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand and pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud, yeah, so Ehud did not pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels emptied. Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. So here we have Eglon okay, and Ehud face to face. And, and Ehud says, I have a message for you. And Eglon says, oh, he's got a message for me. Everybody be quiet. And he says, I'll tell you what, everybody get out of the room. Now this is uncommon because a king would not normally allow himself to be alone with his enemy. Uh, but two things may have been at play here. Uh, Eglon may have thought that this guy's only one-handed, uh, so he can't hurt me. Or he may have thought, hey, Ehud's going to give me a very special message. Ehud's got something for me from God, and maybe it's a message as a spy telling me what's happening, or maybe he's going to pay me some private tribute, give me a personal bribe. Whatever it was, Eglon allowed, him to get close to, allowed Ehud to get close to him. And I think I may have figured out what the special message was too. I think it was, I'm going to gut you like a pig. Maybe, maybe not. Okay. Um, Ehud now worked his plan. Okay. He took action, and as he approached King Eglon, uh, he stood up, and Ehud quickly pulled the dagger out from underneath his clothes with his left hand, and he stabbed the king right in the belly. 
Now, I can imagine the sound of this sucking the sword into his belly, something like this. Okay. Folks, I know it's gross, okay? Uh, but it's going to get just a little bit grosser, all right? Uh, we're told that his bowels emptied, literally that the dung came out. And I, I like the way that the Scriptures record some details for us and the way that things happen. And, I mean, it lets me know that it's real people and real details. All right? So, again, if you haven't read the book of Judges, there's a lot more st stories in there that are just absolutely fascinating of how God worked and the details in there. But Ehud, anyway, Ehud walks over to the door. He closes the door behind him. He locks it, and he heads out the latrine, climbs down, and escapes. Now, let's look at the next two verses, verses 24 and 25, and they tell us this. After Ehud was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room. So they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. Eglon's servants come to the door to the room. And the door's locked, and they can't get in. And then one of them's sitting there, and they're going... What, what's that smell? Like, ugh, man, the king needs to light a candle or something. Man, my eyes are watering. And they stand there, and they wait. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait to the point where it's uncomfortable, they're a little bit embarrassed, and they're going, what, what do we do? Like, he's been in there forever. And finally one says, okay, let's go get the key, and let's go in. But, I mean, how do you do that? How do you walk in on the king, right? Do you knock, king, king, everything okay in there? I mean, it's very awkward. But they finally go, okay, let's go in and let's check and see. And then they open the door, and there's the king, dead on the floor with blood and dung everywhere. Ehud's nowhere to be found. He's split. He is long gone. Okay, now let's pick up this passage back again in verse 26. And we'll read through the end of the passage here. It says this, While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, passing the stone idols on his way to Sarah. When he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded a call to arms, then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him, and the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. When Ehud got back to where, he, where there were some Israelites, he blew the ram's horn. He sounded a call to arms, and people came out of the hills and followed him. But notice what he says here in verse 28. I love this. He says this, Follow me, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. Man, I can hear the confidence in his voice. I can hear the confidence saying, Hey, follow me. Come on, guys, let's go. Uh, notice, though, he doesn't take any credit for what happened. He gives the credit to God. He doesn't say, hey, guys, I just killed the king, Eglon. No. He says, the Lord has given you the victory. This guy's just risked his life. He's just taken out the king, and yet the only mention of himself is when he says, follow me, which is in essence saying, come on, guys, let's go. We've got Moabites to go kill. Ehud had a good plan again. He went to the Jordan River. They blocked off the crossing so that nobody could escape. And then they killed 10,000 of Moabites' best warriors that day. And the last verse we read tells us that there was peace in the land for 80 years. There was a lifetime of peace for people because one man risked his life, because one man took action, because one man was an overcomer. Peace in the land for 80 years. 
So here's the third thing that we need to tell ourselves when we're battling. We need to say this. I will give God the glory. I will give God the glory. That's what Ahi did. He gave God the glory for the victory. You see, God took what could have been a weakness of his and he used it for a victory. Uh, God took his not being able to use his right hand and he showed that he could still achieve victory in spite of Ahud's weakness. God could take a weakness and turn it into a victory. Sometimes in our lives, our insecurities about ourselves will prevent us from giving the glory to God. Insecurity often shows itself up in one of two ways. Uh, it can show up by paralyzing us and keeping us from taking action because of fear. Well, the second way that it shows up is through pride. And this is my personal struggle. Uh, rather than acknowledging my insecurities, I cover them up and I hide them and I get proud about what I can do. And so then I call attention to myself about what I have done. And that's just what I do. I talk about myself. I talk about my accomplishments. It's one of my struggles to give God the glory. But isn't it refreshing when we hear someone have the confidence to say, God did this. God gets the glory. It wasn't me, it was him. Man, that's refreshing when people say that. When you give God the glory, you're setting the example for someone else to follow. You're helping to point others to him. You're helping them to pause and to think about how God has worked through them despite their weaknesses. So let's tell ourselves the truth that I will give God the glory. Will you say this with me, please? I will give God the glory. Thank you. So what's the one thing you need to do? What's preventing you from taking action? Let's be overcomers. Let's win this battle that's going on with ourselves. Let's win this fight that's going on inside of us. Let's tell ourselves the truth. Let's say I'm uniquely created by God and recognize that God made you to be who you are and that you can thank Him for that. Let's say, I have to do this, right? Recognize the urgency that, man, we need to take action. We need to be motivated to get it done. And then let's say, I will give God the glory and recognize that God is the one who gives you the strength to be an overcomer. Let's pray this morning. God, we're grateful for you. And God, we thank you that you give us your word, you give us the scriptures that tell us about people who have overcome. And God, that we can be encouraged that we can overcome as well. And God, I just ask that you would help us today to realize that you've empowered us, God. You've strengthened us in spite of our weaknesses. That God, you've given us what we need to honor you and to do what you want us to do. And so God, I just ask that we would think of that thing that we need to be an overcomer in. And God, that we would be able to focus on that today and that we'd be able to say, man, God, I know you created me and God, I know that you need the glory from this. And so, God, I just pray that you'd work in our hearts in a special way today. I pray that you'd work in our minds that we'd start telling ourselves the truth of who you are and how you made us. And God, we love you and we thank you so much for loving us and we ask that you bless the rest of our day. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming out this morning, folks. Have you, hope you have a great week. and We'll see you back here next Sunday.